Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 38 in the book of Hebrews titled Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we're in the middle of chapter 12. We're talking about the superior life portion of the three-part outline you gave of the book, the superior mediator leads to a superior covenant, which leads to a superior life. And we walked through some serious warnings. We walked through this warning to um, be holy and not be like Esau who went after immorality. And then in verse 18, the author is going to contrast two mountains. Uh, What are we going to see in these verses that you want to highlight for us? Well, Joel, I couldn't be more excited uh, to go through any passage of scripture than this one today. What a thrilling vision that we're going to have of the heavenly Mount Zion. And what, as you mentioned, what's being contrasted is Mount Sinai, which represents the Old Covenant, with all of its terror and death, really. Contrasted with Mount Zion, with all of its joy. Really, if I could zero in the the two mountains, you've got terror versus joy. And so the author is going to continue to make his point, why would you want to go backward to the Old Covenant, to Old Covenant Judaism, which these Jewish professors of faith in Christ were being tempted to do? Why would you go backward into a life of terror in which the law cannot do anything really but condemn you. I mean, we're not going to keep it. We cannot keep it. It's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear, Peter said. We cannot hold this yoke. We cannot carry it. We're going to get crushed by it. We're going to get condemned by it. Why would you want to go back to Mount Sinai uh, where you're going to be condemned and live a life of terror? You know, where it says we've not received a spirit again that makes us a slave to fear. Uh, that's what Sinai was all about, if understood properly. Yeah. If and you, not only was yeah. Sinai uh, terrifying, it was also ineffective. It was ineffective. The people are doing idolatry down below. Could not save anyone. Uh, the only way that Sinai can save you is if you're self-deceived. If you're a Pharisee who thinks you're keeping the law, or the rich young ruler, I've kept all this from my childhood, but that's just a form of deception. The Holy Spirit cuts through all that and says, no, you haven't kept it. You've not kept the heart commands to honor God, to love him with all your heart, to love your neighbors yourself. You've not kept those, and therefore... Sinai will condemn you, but Zion, that's our hope. And so how is this uh, an element of the superior life? It's a life filled with hope. What better way could we go through this, this world of sorrow and woe and sin and death, but also of the grace of God at work through the gospel? What better way could we go through it than filled with hope in where we're heading? We are going to Mount Zion, and we should be filled with joy every day over that. Mm. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So my first question to you, Andy, and I know you've mentioned this in the intro, is what kind of mountain is Mount Zion? And then I'll just ask a quick follow-up on that. Um, Why did God present himself in this mountain in such a terrifying manner? 
Yeah, so this is uh, just taken from the Pentateuch, from the account in Exodus, and then repeated, renewed, or mentioned again in Deuteronomy. So we have a sense of the terror that Almighty God was going for. There's no doubt about it. He wanted the people to be afraid. And he achieved that through a variety of ways, as is said in this paragraph. The commandment, for example, that if any man or animal went up on the mountain, that man or animal should be slain. No hand should be laid on them, but they should be stoned or shot with an arrow, almost like they're being electrocuted. And if you grab hold of them, you'll be electrocuted too. So there's that. Then there's the, the warning that in three days time, in two days time, next tomorrow we will see the Lord. And then God descends in a dark cloud and there's lightning flashes and there's this voice that's so loud that the people begged that it not continue to speak. Even though it was the voice of God, you would think we want to hear God, but they were so terrified. They said, Moses, you go and listen. We can't bear this voice anymore, the sound of a trumpet blast. And then there's this earthquake. The ground beneath them is shaking. The mountain itself is on fire. There's limits put around the mountain so that they can't cross those limits. And God summons them and begins with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods beside me. And there's this, this terror. There's no doubt that that's what God wanted. He wanted the people terrified. And so as you look at that, you're thinking, why would anyone be attracted to that? But the people were attracted. They wanted to be near God. And so there's this sense in which the old covenant represents this far you may come and no farther. They're, the people are attracted to it, but all it's going to bring for them in the old covenant was death. The author begins in an interesting way he begins with a negative statement, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and a gloom and a tempest. And it's a little confusing to me because, because I, th I would have thought he would have mentioned that Mount Sinai was untouchable. Well, first of all, he's going to say you have come to Mount uh, Zion. So Which cannot be touched or it, can be touched? It cannot be touched in this contrast. So in your coming now, you can't touch it. Okay, that's what he's saying. But if you had been with the Jews back then and you had come, you could touch it. It was a physical mountain. And so he's contrasting, it seems to me, a physical earthly reality to a spiritual heavenly reality. And he's going to do the same kind of arguing is that Mount Zion is superior to Mount Sinai, just as heaven is superior to earth. And so there's this physical versus spiritual aspect. So you've not come. The mountain you have come to that he's going to talk about in a moment, Mount Zion, cannot be touched uh, and cannot be seen. It's experienced by faith, uh, something that cannot be seen or, or your five senses are not useful to you in this coming to Mount Zion. But they would have been in coming to Mount Sinai. And as you say that, it reminds me of where it says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So I guess Mount Zion cannot be shaken either. Mm, that's right. It's permanent. It's eternal. And uh, God isn't seeking in Mount Zion in, in heaven to bring terror to the inhabitants. Uh, the time for terror is over. Now, you asked earlier, why does God go for terror? Well, he says very plainly in Exodus, why? He said, do not be afraid. The fear of the Lord has come upon you to keep you from sinning. In other words, in fearing God, you need fear nothing else. But if you don't fear God and then sin, you need to fear everything. Uh, there's no part of your life that God could not use to discipline you or even execute you. So here's the thing. The fear of the Lord keeps you safe. And so he's looking for the people to fear him like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he's going to say, the author's going to say at the end of this chapter that our God is a consuming fire. He's no less holy now than he ever was. 
But like John Newton said in Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fears relieved." So there's a sequence here. He first establishes Mount Sinai and the terror, which we deserve to feel the fear of the Lord and the, and the execution, the, the eternal death of hell that we deserve, and then have that resolved in the joy of salvation. What do you think this passage about the terror of Mount Sinai can teach us about the kind of experiences that will accompany Judgment Day? I think we should continue, even as Christians in the New Covenant, to have fear. There's no doubt that the author here wants his readers to feel fear. He's going to end this chapter with one of the most fearsome warnings there is in the entire Bible. Um, there's nothing left except uh, ex uh, a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's how he ends this chapter, and he's writing to New Covenant people. Uh, many passages in the New Testament seem to be established uh, or written for us so that we would fear sin and fear God's reaction to sin. For example, uh, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you, but fear the one, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. No one taught about hell with as much detail as Jesus did. So, for example, in the area of sexual purity, he wants us to realize that it's better for us to lose one part of our body than for our whole body to be thrown into the fire of hell where the worm is, does not die and the fire is never quenched, quoting Isaiah 66. So the idea here is we should fear sin and fear God's reaction to sin still in the new covenant. It keeps us from sinning. Right. What does it teach us that even somebody like Moses said, I tremble with fear? That's an interesting statement. It's one of those New Testament moments in which you've you really look in vain in the Old Testament to find this exact statement, a quote where Moses is there looking on Mount Sinai as the leader of the people, the kind of mediator leader, and he says, quote, I am trembling with fear, end quote. He does say in Deuteronomy chapter 9, he said, I was afraid of the wrath of God that day, etc., afraid of what God would do. But he doesn't say, I am trembling with fear. So what we have here is the Holy Spirit speaking through the author to Hebrews, giving us some new information. But it's totally consistent. Moses was a man like anybody else. He was a servant in God's house. And he was included. Uh, he wasn't free from fear of, of uh, the condemnation of sin. And so he was terrified. So what should we think? We say, if a holy, godly, amazing man like Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. If you're not trembling with fear, you're spiritually blind. You don't know who God is. You don't know what's going on. So there is a sense that we underestimate the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. So here's Moses. He set an example for us, and he's saying, when I look at Mount, Mount Sinai, I'm trembling with fear. Hmm. Well, Mount Sinai is scary and terrifying, but thank God there's a new and better covenant. So verse 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And he continues on, but I want to cut it off because I want to ask yeah. you, what is Mount Zion? Wow, what a question. It's, it's such a rich concept in the Old Testament. The word Zion is used again and again in the book of Isaiah. I wrote a commentary. It took me five years to write, and I could spend another five years on Isaiah, and I'd write a slightly or even significantly different commentary. Not theologically different, but there's always more details to talk about. That's how exciting the book of Isaiah is. And again and again, we have the word Zion. So Zion to the Jew in the Old Testament would, would 
first of all, the city of Zion would represent Jerusalem, the physical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, uh, the Jebusite city that David conquered and that became the capital of Judah and, uh, you know, the capital of Israel under the unified kingdom and then the capital of, of the southern kingdom of Judah. So that's what they thought of as Zion. And there would be Psalms that talk about going around Zion and considering well, well, considering well her ramparts and all that. And again, they would have read that saying, we're talking about Jerusalem, the physical city of Jerusalem. However, we also know from Galatians chapter 4 that there is a Jerusalem that is above, and she is our mother. Um, so using an interesting allegorical picture there. But the Jerusalem that is above is the heavenly Zion, and this is a strong indication of the existence of this idea of a heavenly Zion. And heavenly Zion would be the heavenly Jerusalem that is a work in progress right now, we would say. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes down like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. In other words, she's up there in heaven getting ready for the wedding day. She's getting dressed, so to speak. And she's getting dressed with the, with the righteous acts of the saints, the book of Revelation says. The white robes that, uh, that they wear, Revelation 19, represent the righteous acts of the saints. And so the good deeds that we do, uh, the way that we put sin to death by the Spirit, the way we share the gospel and reach out, the way we use our spiritual gifts to serve each other, any good thing that we do beautifies the heavenly Zion. So for me, the heavenly Zion represents the church, the people of the living God, and also the dwelling place of the church. Uh, we have to have a place where we will be, so it's not just the church. There is a place that Jesus prepares for us uh, where we will be with our resurrection bodies, the new Jerusalem read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. So for me, the heavenly Zion is right now a work in progress. It's the place where, where spirits go, that the text mentions, but disembodied spirits go to be with the Lord and to worship him, but it's not a completely perfected heaven yet. Perfected meaning completed, that everything's done. Wow, that is a deep concept. He, he tells his readers that they have come to Mount Zion, to this city of the living God. What does it mean that they have come now to Zion? Right, by faith. Um, so I think it's the same thing we see in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says, but we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than men, now seated at the right hand of God. Well, we see no such thing physically. We don't. First uh, Peter 1 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. So we do not see Jesus seated at the right hand of God, but we do by faith. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. So in this case, it's more of a locational thing. You have come to this place. We've come from point A to point B. We have made a, a, a journey. We've crossed over, let's say, crossed over the river, like Jesus said in John 5, 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Well, when you do that, when you cross over from death to life, you have come to the heavenly Zion by faith. It means to become a Christian. And you're now included in the, uh, the work in progress. So we who are saints here on earth and the disembodied saints who have died and are up in heaven, we are part of the same kind of heavenly Zion right now, a work in progress, but uh, they're further ahead than we are because they've been perfect, perfected. I really appreciate how you ex explain that, how it's just coming to Mount Zion is, is, coming, is becoming a Christian. Because yeah. it makes all these, these psalms and prophecies make sense where they, you know, one person will say to another, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, oh, to yeah. Mount Zion, that we may learn his laws and walk in his ways. And if you realize, yeah. oh, that, that means becoming a Christian. Then, yeah. And then all the nations, there are prophecies about the nations streaming yeah. to Zion. Isaiah 2. Well, that makes sense. Isaiah 2. It's a beautiful image. Thank you for mentioning that. You know, and I remember distinctly uh, where it says, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up. And so come and say, come. So we're in the process of coming. 
we're not there yet. Um, in some ways, we've arrived by faith in Christ, but we're still on a journey. Uh, we know the way to the place uh, that Jesus is going. So there's this journey. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So we're journeying. Christianity early on was called the way. So we are in the process of coming, but we're also saying to other people, come. So there's this song of ascent. Beckoning. Yeah, come with me, and we're going to go up to up to. It's uh, evangelism, Zion. right? It is encouragement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's a great image. So we have come, and we're still coming, and we're inviting other people to come. Also, at the end of Revelation 22, it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come. And let everyone who hears come and drink the water of the living, uh, the living water. And so when Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and, and heavy laden, um, he also says, you will not come to me that you may have life. He uses the word come a lot. So the idea is you're in another place spiritually and you come to Jesus by faith. I think it's the same image here with the heavenly Zion. Right. What does the end of verse 22 teach us about the angels in the New Jerusalem and just the ambiance that is created there in the gathering. Wow, you've come to myriads of myriads, I guess. There's different, uh, sometimes uh, some people, even geeks like me, do the math. Um, like 10,000 times 10,000 ends up like 100 million. So you do these exponents, 100 well, that's million. That's why the ESV just says innumerable. All right, innumerable. <laughs> myriads of myriads or 10,000 times 10,000. So it's hard to even imagine 100 million angels. Um, but just uh, they are eagerly there to serve God. Whatever he says to do, they do. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, may your will be done on earth as or in the same way it is done in heaven. We had a slogan uh, tied to parenting that we want to teach our kids to obey all the way, right away, with a happy spirit. And so that's the goal of all parenting. Your children would obey all the way. That is everything you tell them to do right away. That is with no delay and with a happy spirit, meaning they're into it. They want to do it. They want Man, to please you. I feel like my parenting is failing on all three of those. <laughs> it's a goal. It's a goal. We don't, don't, we don't obey all the way. They yeah. don't obey. <laughs> neither do we, bro. Neither do we. We're, we're trying. But the angels do. Uh, when, when the angels are told to do anything, bring good news to a, a, a young Jewish girl uh, that she's going to be pregnant with, uh, with a, a savior of the world, uh, Gabriel goes. Um, you send an angel to go do this, go do that. Messengers, angelos in the Greek just means a messenger. So they're sent with messages, but clearly in the book of Daniel, they're doing some warfare and fighting. Uh, book of Revelation, they do all kinds of things. They even do devastating things, things that would be horrible if they weren't commanded by God, but they're acts of judgment. And they do immediately whatever God says to do. And they celebrate and they worship God. So whatever God tells them to do, they do. So here you've got 100 million or innumerable or myriad of myriad of angels here who are in, it says, in joyful assembly, what is the ESV? The festal gathering. Festal. Yeah. What a joyful word. assembly, <laughs> they festal are. gathering. See, that's a, again, the image here of Mount Zion, it's all about joy. Yeah. And Mount joy. Sinai, it's all about terror. So why would you want to go back to that? That's the idea here, the superiority of the life of joy. As we talk about that, I think this might be one of the most powerful arguments that the author has made so far. Um, I mean, obviously the arguments about Jesus being a better mediator, of course, that's in the text here. But this, um, the temper and the tone of joy versus terror is, is powerful. Sure. Well, I, I keep in mind what the author has already said. The law made nothing perfect. Mount, Mount Zion is about perfection. If you are not perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you can't go there. You will make that place imperfect by your pollution. So the law cannot make you perfect. It perfected nothing. Therefore, the only thing the law could ever do is send you to hell. That's the only thing it possibly could ever do is condemn you. 
And so there's nothing but terror and death at Mount, Mount Sinai. But Mount Zion, it's nothing but joy and hope. And, uh, you know, for us as we look ahead, we are going to heaven. And what a beautiful, beautiful image that is. We, we have come to this, this place filled with life and joy. Yeah. He, he's just laying on more descriptions, mm-hmm. I think, to get them really yeah. excited about it, probably. Yeah. He says, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Mm. There's several, I think, important theological words here. One is the assembly. Mm-hmm. One is the firstborn. And then there's this idea of being enrolled in heaven. Um, what do you make out of the assembly? And then... Sure. Right. Well, first, you know, I'm, I'm working on a book right now on heavenly memories. And one of the, the ideas of my book is that we'll spend some of our time in heaven looking backward at, at history, at what God did. And one of the proofs I have for this is how many Psalms talk about the assembly of the people of God. They come together to tell the stories. They come together to worship. There's an assembly together. It's, there's not a bunch of loners up in heaven. People say, yeah, you go. I'll stay here. You know, no, no, no. We're all assembled together. We're going to be with each other. We're going to be glad to be with each other. So there's that assembly together, and we come together to worship the living God. We come together to worship Almighty God for what He's done. So the word assembly, or some translations even have church, the idea of those that are called together or assembling together for a purpose. And in heaven, we're going to, that'll be the consummation of those psalms that talk about, I will, I will tell in the, in the assembly the great deeds of the Lord. You know, that telling, that narration idea. I'm going to declare God's praises in the assembly. There's lots of them. You just look up the psalms. There's a lot of them. So there's that idea. And then it's, it says firstborn. And uh, I think the idea here, uh, it either could be the first fruits of the gospel where you've got, you know, some individuals that are, are the first ones of, of a larger family, you know. And you get that in, in uh, Isaiah 54 where, where uh, the woman Zion is told to enlarge this, her tent stakes. She's going to have more children. So you already have some children that are already born and then you've got some others that are coming later. So that could be that. Or firstborn generally means first in rank or preeminence. And so we are the firstborn of all of God's, uh, uh, all of um, of uh, the human beings that have ever lived. So the firstborn is, is preeminent in rank, uh, just like Joseph was preeminent over his brothers. So there's a lot of different images here, but it's a, it's a title of honor. Do you think the firstborn is referring to Jesus, the assembly of the firstborn, and that we are his assembly? Yeah, I like that better. That's a, that's a better, uh, maybe the firstborn is Jesus and, and we are the rest of the family, the brothers. So he's the firstborn. I like that better. It's good. And I also like how it says that, that um, their names are written in heaven, the assembly are written in heaven. So that's pretty powerful. The idea that do not rejoice, Jesus said, that the demons are subject, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Yeah, I love awesome. it. Yeah, enrolled. Yeah, enrolled. Said, hey, this is my place. I belong here. Yeah, and nothing can, nothing can scratch that out. Indelible ink. He also says, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We have talked a lot about God and, and, and the judge of all. So I'm all right, so well, hang on a second before we go on, because we also, you know, uh, it says that, we, that you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And again, this statement here, you have come to God. So it seems to be a, a focal point. So let's not forget, as I think John Piper wrote a book, God is the gospel. He is the good news. And what we get, all these other things, even my book about looking backward and all that, it's all about God. It's about seeing what God has done in church history, seeing what God has done in the redeemed. So in the end, what we get when we assemble here in Mount Zion, you get God. And nothing's better than that. He is the 
Jesus came to earth and, and became incarnate and lived his life and died on the cross and rose again and sent his spirit, all of it for one purpose, to bring us to God. That's the point of it all, that we would be reconciled and brought to the Father. As Jesus said, the Father himself loves you and so that we would be brought to him. That's what we get. He's at the center of the heavenly Zion. And do you want to add anything about him mentioning again the judge of all? Ooh. Well, God is the judge of all, all men, and he has judged all people, all human beings. Uh, that's the role he plays. Now, Jesus said in John 5, he's entrusted all judgment to the Son. Right. Um, so he does it through Jesus, but it's the same thing. When Jesus judges you, the Father has judged you. Just like he said, you know, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So if Jesus says, depart from me who are cursed, it's the Father saying it, but he's saying it through the Son. And he says, my judgment is just because I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So everything he does is to the pleasure of God. So God, Almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he is the judge of all humanity. That's who we're coming to. And he says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Isn't that our great hope? It is a powerful phrase. We and could I think spend it, an hour on this. <laughs> I think it teaches us a lot. I, um, <clears throat> I know many people are kind of sucked in but the doctrine of soul sleep. And, uh, yeah. and I think this verse is powerful for killing that. How would this be helpful? There's not a lot. I would say for me, the weakest area of eschatology for me personally, and I think in general, because there's just not much written about it in the Bible, is uh, the intermediate state things. All right. The first uh, theological writing of John Calvin's writing career was against the doctrine of soul, soul sleep. It's the first theological writing he ever did called Psychopanicia, an odd title. Um, but he there talked about 2 Corinthians 5, which talks about being absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so we should not think this is some feature of Greek philosophical speculating. No, this is biblical. The idea is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Jesus said, that's the doctrine of the resurrection. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Abraham is alive now, just without a body. Isaac is alive now. Jacob still maintains his identity as Jacob now. But they don't have bodies yet. And so here we have the idea of, of spirits. Not, not, they're not uh, physical. Okay, They're spirits. Um, and that word spirit is interesting, our own spirit. Like it says, the spirit testifies with our spirits that we are the children of God. So our spirit is our immaterial selves, okay? The part of us that thinks, the part of us that has emotions, the part of us that wills, makes choices, the part of us especially that loves and that hates. That part of us, that immaterial part of us is, some people just call it our soul, um, it's hard to distinguish between soul and spirit. Biblically, there's lots of debates about that, but I just don't make much of a distinction. It's just that immaterial part of you. So we have come to an assembly of spirits. That's what he's talking about, the heavenly spirits. So these are the ones who are absent from the body, and they are present with the Lord. But look what it says about them. They're made perfect. Their spirits have been perfected. Isn't that awesome? What that means is they'll never have another sin thought again. They will not fail to have the proper emotional response to everything. They will think like Jesus thinks. We have the mind of Christ now, but we don't use it. So the, Paul has to say in Philippians, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Now he says in Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ, but apparently we don't always use it. So we always have the ability to think like Jesus, but we don't always do it. In heaven, we will. We'll think just like Jesus. We will love what Jesus loves and hate what he hates. We'll see everything the way Jesus sees it. And so these spirits, this is the final or the penultimate stage, penultimate, 
of salvation. Glorification part one, which is the perfection of the spirit before the resurrection of the body. The final stage, our adoption as sons, it says in Romans 8, is the resurrection of the body. And that hasn't come for these people yet. They are just spirits, but they are made perfect. So what that means is they are really enjoying God up in heaven. They're enjoying each other horizontally up in heaven. They are loving everything about God and about each other and about what God's doing. They're celebrating and worshiping and picture that in your mind. Someday, if the Lord doesn't return in your lifetime or in mine, we'll be among that number. Which is why you said in the beginning that Zion is a work in progress getting yeah. bigger and bigger and bigger because oh. of that city, people are being added every day. Yeah. I believe there's a decisive moment of the resurrection happens for everybody all at once. I think First Thessalonians 4 teaches this plainly. That's the rapture verse, but it's also a resurrection verse. And it says the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive at the coming of the Lord will receive our resurrection bodies in a flash and the twinkling of an eye all at once. I understand Revelation 20 has some complexities with the millennium. I don't deny that it's complex. There seem to be two, two resurrections. I understand that. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, there seem to be just one. So it's hard to harmonize all that. All I'm saying is in the end, we will have resurrection bodies. These folks don't have them yet. And yet they are perfected in their, in their spirits and they're worshiping God. I love it and I can't wait to go there. And it's good for us to remember at Christian funerals. That's exactly what we, we recently yeah. did a couple of funerals for some godly people, a, a husband and wife that died maybe about a month apart. Um, first the husband, then the wife. And it's just you go in Hebrews 12, just talk about it. Say they're, they're absent from the body, present with the Lord, and they're righteous and they're praising God. So what a joyful picture that is. Yeah, it really is. He next mentions Jesus. He says, verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And we've discussed the mediator before. Um, we discussed it in detail. Yeah. But I just want you to bring it up again because the text does. Um, sure. he, the outline you gave for the book again was a superior mediator right. leads to a superior covenant, leads to a superior life. Right. And so now he brings the mediator back. Yeah. Um, in front of these people. Yeah, I mean, it's like we don't we don't get done with the earlier stages. Um, Jesus is the superior mediator right away, and we can just be with him all the time. And so the idea here is it's you have come to, and there's like colon and a series of things. You've come to this and to that. You've come to Jesus. You've come to Jesus. Think about that. And that's, he, who is he? He's the mediator of a new covenant. That's who you've come to. And so we're together with him, and so we'll be always with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, Jesus says, so that, so that you also may be where I am. He says in John 14, you know the way to the place where I'm going. He wants to be with us. He says in John 17, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. So what a, what a thing that is to be able to be with Jesus and see his glory. We'll be act actually at that point able to see him with our own eyes, seated at the right hand of God. But here we just do it by faith. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And it says of him, his blood which was shed, that's the blood of the covenant, the new covenant that he talks about the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of Jesus actually affects, produces the forgiveness of sins. The blood of animals, of bulls and goats, never did. It was symbolic. It was a type and a shadow of a superior covenant that was coming later. So how does it speak a better word? And then if you could also ask, how does the blood of Abel speak as well? Right. That's a great, great statement. Well, let's go to the first, which is the more glorious of the two. This blood of Jesus speaks this better word, forgiven. 
I could choose a number of words to put in there, but let's do that one. The blood of Jesus speaks to you forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. The blood of bulls and goats could never speak that word. Never. It would point to a forgiveness, but it could not affect the forgiveness. So it says in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what it is. The redemption through his blood is, equals, the forgiveness of sins. Um, there are other words we could say. How about adopted? Okay, adopted. But first the forgiveness, then the adoption. So there's lots of words we could have. Maybe it's one word that has lots of features. <laughs> it's like a treasure box word, but it speaks the word of the blessings of the new covenant. Um, and that's a better word. It's That's the word better again. We keep seeing that. This is a better covenant, better blood. All right. The blood that Abel offered um, was animal sacrifice. As far as we know, he's the first that formally offered it. We don't have any other you know, no pictures of Adam offering animal blood. Uh, he may have done it. We just have no picture of it. But Abel, by faith, we already told in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel offered God that sacrifice. Better than what Cain offered, but inferior to the blood of Jesus. What do you think about the possibility that the blood of Abel mentioned is Abel's death? Maybe the idea that the message that it speaks to Cain was Cain's curse was he had to go away from the Lord, essentially away from the from the people of God and away, whereas the blood of Jesus brings near. Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, it's a very interesting, interesting angle, and it may be because we know in Hebrews 11 it mentions both, both the blood that Abel offered, in other words, the animal sacrifice, which was a better sacrifice than Cain's, and Abel's death. It, it, it's, it still speaks even though he is dead. So he's mentioned there as his death, although his blood is not directly mentioned. Uh, but the sacrifice uh, that he offered, animal sacrifice, was mentioned. So I think then going with your uh, interpretation, namely we're talking about Jesus' death speaks a better word than Abel's death. At that point, Abel is just a martyr um, destroyed by evil and wickedness in this world, Cain being the quintessential, along with, with Esau, quintessential evil, unbelieving man. Um, and all it did was just set up a kind of a pattern of martyrs, with Jesus being the ultimate one, but there, the blood of martyrs never saved anyone's soul. The blood of Jesus saves people's souls. So we could go with that. In any case, the way that the blood of Jesus speaks better than anything is that it's the sacrificial blood of Jesus on the cross that produces salvation and nothing else does. So in either case, you end up in the same place. Right. That makes sense. Do you have any final words on these few verses before we end the podcast? Yes. Set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on heaven. Think about heaven. Be filled with hope. These words are phenomenal. The details, the phrases, they're very suggestive. And you know the author, if the Lord had wanted, could have given a hundred other truthful phrases about our future life in heaven, which would have been electrifying. But he's given us enough. And so set your heart on things above and things to come, not on earthly things. And if you do, you'll put sin to death better. You'll be more fruitful. Uh, you'll be more courageous in evangelism. So fill your heart with heaven so that you can be really maximally fruitful here on earth. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. I think my favorite part is just you talking about Zion as a city of joy. You know, in this world, there's so much tribulation, but uh, we're looking forward to the city of joy. Well, that was episode 38 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 39, where we discuss a kingdom that cannot be shaken from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.